Today's video was recorded on April 18, 2023. Today's lesson is the final in our series on God's appointed feasts. And this week, we're going to explore the holiday of Hanukkah. Or if we translate that into English, it would mean dedication. So it's the feast or festival of dedication. Now, Hanukkah had become a regular holiday by the first century. And John records that Jesus went to the festival of dedication. So if Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, then we should at least know something about the holiday. And that's what we're going to do today. So in this lesson, we're going to explore the historical events that happened around 165 BC in Jerusalem that gives birth to this annual celebration. And Hanukkah, it's a celebration of religious and political freedom. It's a group that we know as the Maccabees, and when they were pressed by a Greek king to make sacrifices to a pagan god, they said no. And it kicked off a revolution of those who were zealous for the word of God. And then we'll see these zealous actions by the Maccabees. Well, they would inspire those in Jesus' day. That's almost 200 years later. Those who were zealous for God's law and vehemently opposed to having Roman rule. And I think when you have knowledge of this holiday, it can really help you understand the actions of many of those who Jesus interacts with during his ministry and also the actions of Paul before he meets Jesus on the Damascus Road. So on a logistical note, make sure you check the show notes below and there will be a link there to our website that has the class handout. And make sure you download that handout. Use it to follow along and take notes. These are designed to help you in the learning process, help you capture so many of these details. And this lesson has a lot of details and it'll really help you capture those details and then you'll have the chance to go over them later and reinforce what you learn. So we hope you enjoy today's lesson on the Festival of Dedication, or what we call Hanukkah, and that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. This is going to be our final in the holidays, and this one, well, it's not even a holiday that God commands, but Jesus does go to Hanukkah. We'll read that passage in a minute. And since he goes there, well, we need to know something about it. And I think there's, there's far more from the events that resulted in Hanukkah that help us understand our New Testament. So I think that by the time we're done tonight, you'll at least say, aha, that actually helps me understand what's going on with Jesus in the New Testament, because this is their history, very recent history. So just like our recent history is World War II and the Civil War and the Revolutionary War and slavery and all those things that affect our collective national psyche, if you will, this is huge in the minds of those first century Jews, particularly the group called the Zealots. So it worked out that we did 12 sessions on the holidays and got a lot of good feedback from different people on, uh, online fr from last week's um, about Jesus' birthday. So that was nice to see. So number 12. All right. So this painting here, I cannot say the first name. So I'll just say Statler is this last name. This was painted in 1842, and it's just called the Maccabees. Now, the Maccabees 
is the name of the family that we connect with Hanukkah. And I'll show you where that name comes from in a one second. But the main person here that we're looking at, and I'll tell you this story as we go, is I'll, I put a circle around him. This gentleman right here, Mattathias, well, his name is Mattathias. He has a group of sons. And what, Matt decide, what, what we'll see that he did, what Mattathias did, is the king, the Greek king, put out orders that you were going to have to make a sacrifice to the pagan gods. And he refused. In fact, if I move this circle, you see the Greek, well, there it looks like a centurion, but the Greek military officer, he's pointing to the edict that says, you have to sacrifice now. The, the king, who was Antiochus Epiphanes, he outlawed reading the Bible. They burned any scrolls. He outlawed circumcision. If you circumcised your child, they killed the, the child first and then the mother. If you got caught reading the Torah, you could be put to death. I mean, it was a terrible time. And he refused. And it kicked off a revolt, and what ends up happening is, and I'll move the circle one more time, this guy right here, we'll learn in a minute, is, na is named uh, Judah Maccabee. Judah the Maccabee. Maccabee means hammer. So it's almost like a nickname. It's not his last name. That's how we refer to him, Judah the hammer. And he ends up leading the revolt that ends, that winds up, with Hanukkah as a celebration. So that's the painting we're looking at there in the background. And as I tell the story, I'll come back to the painting and it'll make more sense when you hear it. Okay, so number one on your handout. If you have your Bible, turn to John 10 and it's verse 22. Because even though God never gave them a commandment to celebrate this holiday, it became a holiday that they did celebrate, and we see that now uh, in John. Very interesting. I mean, there are a number of Jewish customs, like Hanukkah, or like naming a child on the eighth day, that you only find them in our Christian uh, Bible. And it's really interesting when Jewish people realize that the only place it's written down is inside the, the Christian Bible. So we do find the celebration of Hanukkah here in John 10, 22. So verse 22 just says this, Then came the festival of dedication. It was at Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now, festival of dedication, the word dedication in Hebrew as a noun, Hanukkah. I'll go through that word here in a minute. Um, but notice it's winter. Hanukkah normally happens right around, well, it's usually in December, sometimes early December, sometimes late December. A few years ago, when Bonnie and I were in Jerusalem, we arrived, I think, the day after Christmas, or maybe the 27th, and then Hanukkah ran through New Year's Eve. So it was very, it was late that year, but it was very cool to see. And just the power of celebrating an event that took place 2,000 years ago, and to see the people there in Jerusalem and uh, the energy that came out was, was amazing. 
Okay, so that's your one line there in John, uh, that Jesus does go. Now, like I said, there's some other things you could you could maybe possibly connect. Uh, we're not going to get into that, but that's the place we know Jesus went to celebrate. Okay, so the word Hanukkah, this is number two on your handout. Um, the word, as with every other Hebrew word, Every noun is derived from a verb. And so the verb in this case, hanak, and hanak means to dedicate or inaugurate. So what are they doing? Well, they're dedicating the temple. They're rededicating the temple after it had been defiled by the Greeks. They're rededicating it to God. So it becomes a festival of dedication, dedication of the, the temple. So that's the verb hanak. Now, what's interesting to note is that there are a number of dedications throughout the Hebrew Bible. And in the same way that when we talked about the centrality of the holiday of Passover, Passover was central to the nation of Israel at every turning point when they're freed. We all know that one when they're freed from Egypt. But when they get to the promised land, and Joshua leads them across the Jordan. They celebrate a Passover. When uh, Ezra and Nehemiah come back from captivity, they celebrate a Passover. It's celebrated at moments of renewal. Well, this, you have dedication ceremonies throughout the Bible. And so we're not going to read them. I just want you to know where they're at if you want to go look them up. And what you'll find is the word Hanak, or some variant thereof. So uh, we find in the book of Numbers, they dedicate the tabernacle and the altar. And so if you look at number seven, it's a whole list of, of groups that are sacrificing. But when you see verse 88, it says it will say something about a dedication. Uh, Solomon dedicated his temple. That was in 1 Kings 8. Happens to do it, by the way, on ta- the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Feast of Tabernacles is going to connect to this. We'll see that a little bit later. Uh, The second temple, when Ezra and Nehemiah came back from captivity in Babylon. So you can find that in Ezra. And then the final one is when Nehemiah completed the walls of Jerusalem, they had a dedication ceremony. The whole point of this is to the idea of dedication. So when you hear the the word Hanukkah, you recognize that the base of it is a dedication, and these are found throughout the Bible. So when the Maccabees cleansed the temple, and they did this dedication, and they said, oh, by the way, they created an edict, we'll read that later, that says, hey, we want this celebrated every year. In their minds, it's an extension of what's happening in the Bible. God's presence, you know, it was defiled, so God's presence isn't there. We're going to rededicate the temple. We cleanse the temple. And now God's presence is back with us, just like with Solomon, just like with the second temple in Ezra. So in their minds, it's just an extension of the biblical text. Okay, where do we find it? Number three. Well, you find the story of Hanukkah, the the story of the origin of Hanukkah. It's found in some writings that are called 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Now, these are outside of the canon of the Hebrew Bible and outside of the canon of the Protestant Bible, but they're in a Catholic Bible. 
And so they're part of the Apocrypha. We'll go over that in a second. But if you're not familiar with the Apocrypha, these are books that they're written down prior to the birth of Jesus. So in between 100, or I'm sorry, 250 BC to say 100 BC, you know, we don't have a Library of Congress stamp in the, in the, in the front cover that tells us exactly when it was written down. But scholars think the Macca- these books, the Maccabees, were probably around the year 100 BC. So that by the time Jesus comes around, you're already celebrating the holiday. Now, there is, just so you know, first Maccabees. So, okay, let me, let me explain this. They're not in the Hebrew canon. So if you get a Jewish Bible, they're not in there. And part of the reason when, when the rabbis were creating, were finalizing what goes in their Bible, they wanted books that were only written in Hebrew. And the copies of the Maccabees they had were in Greek. But it looks like 1st Maccabees was actually written in either Hebrew or Aramaic because one of our church fathers is talking about the book and he uses a name that would be like a transliteration of an Aramaic name. Now, the, the point being is that it seems that the first one, at least, was actually written in Hebrew, but the only copies we have are in Greek. So either way, you can find these online, or there are Bibles that include the Apocrypha. You can read them on your own, or if you have a Catholic friend, borrow their Bible. Um, either way. The whole point, though, who are the Maccabees? Well, you start with this guy. This is the father. That's the patriarch, Mattathias. And He's the one who resists based on uh, religious objections. And then his son, Judah the Maccabee, the the hammer, that's where we get the name. So first and second Maccabees. Now, they're part of the Apocrypha. So just a quick review, or for anybody online who's not familiar with the Apocrypha, because sometimes, this is a little bit sad to me, sometimes people their anxiety goes up when they see something that's not in the Protestant Bible and this is an area that Protestants are lacking because we don't have a connection between the Old Testament and the New we don't have that historical connection there's nothing wrong with reading these in fact the King James I put this as a as a a note on your handout the King James all of the Bibles printed the the Apocrypha the King James printed the Apocrypha all the way up until 1885, and then they stopped printing it. So for us today, it seems a little foreign, but for the majority of the time within Christianity, these are not foreign books. They just weren't considered to be the canon of Scripture, but they're good for history. They help you understand some uh, how thought transitions from the Old Testament to the New. So if we look at this, we say, okay, the Old Testament ends somewhere around 450 BC, the writing with uh, Chronicles. It's probably the last book that is written in the, New, in the Old Testament. The New Testament, of course, records the birth of Jesus, but we don't start getting those events, uh, really Jesus's ministry, about 30 AD, and then it's not even written down till another 30 to 40 years after that. So we have this big span of about 500 years. Well, it's not like nothing happened. I know that the rabbis say there was no prophetic voice, but it doesn't mean that nothing happened. There's a ton happening, and there's a lot of writings. And these writings 
help us connect often some remarkable details from the Old Testament to the New. So I'm just going to put some names up here. This is not um, this is not all of them, but some of the more popular ones. The Wisdom of Solomon. It's like Proverbs. It's a wisdom book. Uh, you have a book called Tobit. There are some things in Tobit that directly relate to the New Testament. Uh, a book called Sirach. So this is another wisdom book. It's a uh, passing down wisdom from a father to the son. There's a book called Judith, and this is interesting because it's a female heroine. So a book of Judith. These are all, you can find them in the Catholic Bible. And then, of course, 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees. And just as an example, in both 1st and 2nd Maccabees, you find discussion of the resurrection, where the Old Testament is a little loosey-goosey on resurrection. I mean, we, we have verses that we know it's based off of, but when you get to 1st and 2nd Maccabees, now it's a direct, you know, when the resurrection happens, the righteous will be rewarded and the wicked will be punished. And so now you get a direct, and you can see during that 400 years, you get a slightly different uh, shift from a something that's rather vague in the Old Testament to now a pronounced declaration of resurrection by the time we get to the New Testament. So we find something like that in 1 Maccabees. Okay, that's just an example. Now, if you don't have uh, an, an Apocrypha, if you're looking for an Apocrypha to get, probably the best one is, uh, it's one, it's called the Jewish Annotated Apocrypha. Now, the reason I would recommend this one is because, one, it contains more books than the Apocrypha. So you'll find, you'll find a number of other books that are very important within that time period and in Jewish thought and in Christian thought. And the back half of this book has about maybe 20 essays on different topics that relate to that intertestamental period that we have, we lack so much uh, knowledge about what was going on during that time. And it affects the New Testament, the people in the New Testament, as we'll see tonight. So this is a great resource, has all the books, has plenty of notes, will connect Old Testament and New Testament. The essays are great to help you understand his, the history that's going on. So if you're looking for one to get, I would say get this one. Very helpful if you're going to do some thorough Bible study. Okay, that's the Apocrypha. Just wanted to point that out. That's where we find First and Second Maccabees. Again, kind of an interesting thing. Hanukkah is a main Jewish holiday, but the people who kept the Apocrypha going were the Christians. So the Jews can thank the Christians for keeping this story around so that they have it today to read. Okay, uh, I'm going to switch gears to Israel's history, because this is an actual event, and we have to understand why this was so profound. And then you'll see directly how this leads right into the people, the folks in the New Testament that Jesus is dealing with, and Paul. So. I have all of these dates on your handout. I'm just going to kind of walk you through this idea. We all know that you have the kingdom under David, a united kingdom. David was the, was the pinnacle of the kingdom of Israel. Then it goes to Solomon. 
Then, well, it goes to Solomon's sons, and after that, it's gone. It divides. And now you have, you, you went from kingdom, that was one kingdom, 12 tribes, to a divided kingdom. Eventually, the northern kingdom, they call Israel or Ephraim in the Bible, gets taken by the Assyrians uh, into exile. Then, now what you're left is Jerusalem and Judah in the south. And so around 586, it's, it starts about 597 to 586, you get the Babylonian exile. So the Assyrians took the northern tribes, then Babylon came into power, and they're going to come in and take the uh, Judeans, well, yeah, Judah and the rest of the Israelites into captivity, Babylonian exile. And that's the destruction of the first temple that we see. So big, huge event, right? Israel no longer governing themselves, not running the temple. Okay, now the Babylonians in charge. Well, it's not going to last very long. Uh, by 539, so about 50 years, the Persians win a battle. This is where we see Cyrus. They send the, the Israelites, Ezra, Nehemiah, back to say, go ahead, you can rebuild your temple. You're not in charge, though. So they had a Persian governor over them. So they're not running their own affairs. Well, the Persians are in charge for about 200 years. 333, now the Greeks come around. And the Greeks win a battle. Alexander the Great, we all know Alexander the Great. And now the Greeks are in charge. So you can see, well, if it's not Babylon, it's the Persians. If it's not the Persians, it's the Greeks. And so we're not governing ourselves. That's the big deal. Now, when Alexander the Great died, he divided his kingdom into threes, but one of them is really small, so I'm only going to focus on two. It divided into the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and I'm only going to tell you this because I don't want to just throw words at you, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So if you look at your screen, I'll put a map up. Um, this is the Mediterranean Sea. So Jerusalem is at the Red Star. I mean, Israel is just such a teeny little bit of land, but an important piece in, of course, God's creation. But this little backwater place inside the, this now Greek kingdom. Here's the Mediterranean Sea, of course. Babylon is way over here. And this is going to enter our story because when all these Jews go to Babylon, well, they start businesses. Their families are now settled there. Because they're not in charge, they don't have the kingdom yet. The kingdom's not restored back in Israel. They stay in Babylon. Why go back? Oh, we're just going to be ruled by the Persians or ruled by the Greeks. So we'll stay in Babylon. No big deal. So we have Babylon. And now you get to these, these two groups, the Ptolemies. They're out of Alexandria, Egypt. Now you guys know the Ptolemies because Cleopatra is part of this empire. So every queen is named Cle Cleopatra. And so that's where you get a connection at least closer to the day, to Jesus day. And then up north, uh, in that north corner of the Mediterranean Sea, you have the Seleucid Empire called the Seleucid Greeks. And that's why I just want to show you. And Israel is smack in between. There's a, there's a, a, a good textbook. It's called The Land Between. And the land between is Israel. What's it between? It's between great empires. It's Assyria, 
and Egypt. It's the, it's the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. Israel's always right in the middle of all of these, you know, it's like a pressure cooker. Um, okay, so <clears throat> let me go back to this. What happens now that the kingdom had divided under Alexander the Great? In 175 BC now, a king, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. Now, Epiphanes means the manifestation of God. So Antiochus the fourth called himself manifestation of God. So you can see what he thought of himself. He takes over in 175. He's a Seleucid out of Antioch. And what he does, you know, he gets a little bit antsy. He says, I need more space. And he attacks south to Egypt. So right through Israel. And then eventually he's going to turn around and take Jerusalem. So for a long time, the Jewish people lived under the Ptolemies, and the Ptolemies kind of left them alone. But now comes Antiochus Epiphanes, and he comes in, and he's going to start changing the game. So he's a Seleucid ruler. Now, if you look at, in 167, now we're going to get the rise up of this group called the Maccabees. And they're going to lead a revolt, and I'll, I'll explain the revolt in a minute, because it has to do with what Antiochus Epiphanes was doing. But they lead a revolt. And in a, what must have been a miracle, God must have been on their side, they win against this, it was the largest Greek army in the world at the time, the, probably the largest army in the world. And so in 165, led by the Maccabees, Judah Maccabee, they win their Self-rule. Israel gets self-rule. They haven't had self-rule in 300 years, 400 years. And so this is gigantic. The kingdom can finally be restored. Right? This is exactly what the, uh, what the disciples are asking Jesus. Jesus, when's the kingdom going to be restored? Well, this is what everyone thinks. Finally, Israel, the kingdom of God can be restored. We can govern ourselves. And what happened, there's this huge influx of people from Babylon. They co they're coming home. Now, they couldn't settle down in Judea. It was too crowded. So where did they settle? Galilee. And you get all these cities up in the Galilee, little villages that are all brand new. And of course, that's where Jesus' ministry is. Now, the point is, you're governing yourself for about 100 years. And then in 63 BC, who shows up? Rome. Now, how are you feeling if you're one of those people who just came back and are trying to work the land, and now the Romans show up and take your land? Might you be wishing for another Maccabee-style re uh, revolution to overthrow now the Romans this time? And this is a huge uh, event, a huge loss, but a huge event. And this is going to drive right into Jesus' ministry, and the zealots. We'll see that in a, in a minute. They're going to look at those Maccabees who were zealous for the law, and they're going to say, we can do the same thing if we are zealous for the law. No way we're paying taxes to a guy who has his face on the coin and calls himself a god. We will not pay your tax, which is why they're asking Jesus, are you going to pay this tax? So this is such a huge event. 
in the psyche of those people in the first century. Not too far, uh, not too far back, especially for very traditional people. Okay. Now, if you flip your handout over, I want to just talk through some Antiochus Epiphany. I want to drill in a little bit. This guy, as I mentioned, he's Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the manifestation of God. He takes power in 175. In 169 BC, he takes Jerusalem. Now he's going to start cracking down. And in 167, he says, we're all to be one people. And all of you Jews are going to have to convert. You're going to have to sacrifice to the pagan gods. You're going to have to give up all of that religious stuff. And this is a huge event that has to do with religious freedoms. And in the face of being told to do something that goes against your uh, religious beliefs, they said no. So they try to do this, and it, it's not just forced to like, hey, we're going to pressure you via social media. The penalty's death. And many Jews died. So in 167, now you have this event with Mattathias, and he refuses to comply because of his zeal for God's law. He was zealous for God and his law, and he refused to comply. And so if we go back to the painting in the background, that's who we're talking about right there. He's the one who said, I will not do it. In fact, what the, what the guard is, or the officer is telling him, I want you to sacrifice on this, make a sacrifice to the pagan gods. He said, I won't do it. And another Jew steps up and says, I'll do it. And Mattathias, well, he kills the other guy and then kills the officer. We'll read that in a minute. But he's zealous for God's uh, commands. Okay. So by 165, and that's two years later, I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you, but follow the story. They revolt. They go into the, to the, um, the mountains around Judea and Jerusalem. And then in 165, the son now, Judah, the Maccabee, the hammer, he leads the revolt. They win a series of battles. Next thing you know, they've got Jerusalem back. The temple is back in their hands. They restore the temple. And now there's an edict that goes out to celebrate the dedication. And how do you say the dedication in Hebrew? Hanukkah. So that's the story of, of Hanukkah. It's a battle of religious freedom and political freedom, for that matter. And God had to be on their side. Now, well, long story short, here's what happens, though. I mean, if you're a little kid, if you're living in Galilee and you're eight years old, you have Maccabee trading cards or something like that, you know? They're your heroes. The stories, you know, just like we had the, the stories out of the revolution or the stories out of World War II that became for kids when you're growing up, these are the, well, this is who you idolize, right? And so what we end up seeing is you can make a direct line from the Maccabees, from these events, all the way to the zealots of the first century, and they're in the same situation. They have an oppressive foreign rule. In fact, 
If, if you recall from the lessons we did on the zealots, it's remarkable that Jesus chose zealot-like disciples, but he got their zealot energy pointed in the right direction. They went out and changed the world. So uh, what I want you to do is look at the back of your sheet. Now, I had way too many quotes, so I just tried to pick two to give you a, a taste of, of um, these come out of 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees. But I want to show you that how this inspires the zealots. So on your sheet, um, I forgot to put it on your sheet, but it's 1st Maccabees 2, and it's verses 24 and 27. And this is the story where Mattathias, the father, is told to sacrifice. He says, no way, I won't do it. Another Jew says, all right, I'll do it then. And at that point, Mattathias says, nah, I'll kill you. Then I'm going to turn and kill the guard, okay? So start with, look at your sheet, verse 24. So when it starts out and it says, when Mattathias saw it, now what was it? Well, it was the Jew who's going to go do the sacrifice. So Mattathias wouldn't do it, but this other guy says, I'll step up. When he saw that happen, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. Now notice the zeal that's coming out. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. That's the Jewish guy. And then verse 25, at the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing them to sacrifice, and he tore down the altar. And then verse 26, thus he burned with zeal for the law, just as Pinhas, that's from Numbers, and you, that's a whole story of where he's getting his zeal, but burned with zeal. Burn, look, look at that phrase, burned with zeal for the law. Who else tells us that they burned with zeal for the law? Who in our New Testament? Paul. Paul says the same thing. He's a zealot-like, right? He's, he's burning with zeal for the law. And think when he looks at, these, at this Christian movement who might be letting Gentiles in, it freaks him out. Why? Because these are his heroes, the people who kept the Gentiles from destroying their religion. Okay, uh, verse 27. Then Mattathias cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let everyone who's zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. So once again, you see the idea. And this, like I said, goes directly down to Paul, to all the zealots of the first century, to the disciples, and their mindset about what the problem is with Rome. And this is why the crowd wants to make Jesus the king. The crowd wants a political leader to go fight a war and throw off the Romans. And Jesus says, nope, I'm going to die because the greater power in God's cosmos is God's love and forgiveness and mercy and grace. Do that to the Romans and they won't know what to do. So it's, it's radical. For, for the minds of the Jews, I mean, it's really, sometimes we criticize these first century Jewish people who miss Jesus and think, well, how did you miss him? And it's like, well, they had, they had something completely different in mind. So, okay, next one. Let's look at the last one because second Maccabees, this is a second quote. What makes this remarkable is it's an eight-day festival. Well, what eight-day holiday did we just study a couple weeks ago? the Festival of Tabernacles. 
And so they're going to tell us straight away, why is it an eight-day festival? Because, and they're going to reference, it used to be called, very early on, the Festival of Booths in the month of December. Well, it wasn't December, but you get the point. So 2 Maccabees 10, so verse 6 on your, on your handout, it says, they celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing, that's just like uh, the, the Festival of Tabernacles, in the manner of the Festival of Booths. So for eight days, and it's the Festival of Booths. And they remembered how not long before, during the Festival of Booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and the caves like wild animals. And now they're finally back in, they're able to celebrate with God. So what happens is the whole story that we know about Hanukkah, about the, the oil that lasted eight days, that's actually just a myth that was, it's a way of celebrating that came up later. That actually is never recorded in the book of Maccabees. It's recorded that they celebrated for eight days, like the Feast of Tabernacles, but not the part about the oil. That was, that's later um, developed. Okay, last part, I just want to look at verse 8. So they carried ivy and uh, beautiful branches. It's just like the Festival of, of Booths, palm fronds. In fact, the zealots took on a palm frond as their, their symbol. And then verse 8 says this, They decree by public edict, ratified by a vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. Now you get, boom, there's your establishment, just like Congress passes a law and ratifies it that says Thanksgiving is now a holiday. Now you get Hanukkah. Okay? So, lots to read, way too much stuff to do in one short lesson tonight, but I hope you're seeing a little bit of where it comes from. That's the main point, and how uh, huge this is in the psyche, collective psyche, of the first century Jewish people. Particularly if you're zealous for the law, right? Just like Paul was. Okay, now, it's the Festival of Lights, and we understand that today it's about light. Now, there's some reasons behind that, but you have the story about the oil. They didn't have enough oil in one one cask of oil lasted for eight days and kept the light burning. And of course, light, the presence of God is the fire or the light inside the temple. So you're going you're gonna to do something that has to do with lights, but there's a really cool thing going on here. And I just wanted to show you that. Um, the festival happens in December. Now, what's the sh when do we have the shortest day of the year? Well, December, December 22nd. And then the holiday, because the, the Jewish calendar is off the moon, is actually happening as the moon is getting darker and darker and darker and darker. So not only do you have the shortest days of the year, you have the time when the moon goes away. It's the darkest it can be all year. When you're in, when you're in December and the days are short and there's no moon at night. So you get the picture in the midst of the darkness that is the world, what are we going to do? You celebrate with light. And so you, you increase the light because it's getting darker outside around you. And so the, as you all know this, the tradition is you have an, now this is a different, it's an, this has nine candles on it instead of seven because there's eight days, and then the one candle in the middle, this is a special one, it's called the Shemesh, 
no, shamash, which is a shamash, is the attendant. And so you have this one candle that brings the light to the other ones. And then every night, what you do is you put your menorah in your window. Why? Because it's darkness is out there and we need, to, we need to increase the light. And so night number one, you light a candle. Night number two, you light two candles. Night number three, now realize the moon's getting darker every night. So as the moon gets darker, you increase the light. So the next thing you know, by the eighth night, you've got eight candles. It's actually nine, but eight Hanukkah candles lit. And so you can see this amazing picture in the darkness of the world. How do we combat the darkness? Increase your light. So that's a pretty cool connection about the timing. So I'll finish with this. How do we then increase our light, right? The world darkness is rising. How do we increase the light? You engage the world to increase our light to combat the darkness. So Jesus is the light of the world, yes, but he manifests that light through us, through Christians. We're the ones who increase the light in the world so that other people can see it. And this is where the idea of good deeds comes in. It's not good deeds about salvation. It's about good deeds that increase the light of God in the world. Right? And this is why we engage our communities and put God's love on display. And if you remember the parable of the bridesmaids, we noted when we did that one that the vessel that the bridesmaids are carrying, the lamp, that's the word of God, but the oil, the stuff that actually produces the light, the oil that produces the light, that's your good deeds. So I've got two verses uh, on your handout. You can look them up. I just want to show you where we get these ideas from, mainly Proverbs. So this says, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law, the Torah, is light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. How do we increase our light? How do we follow God in a way that brings out the light of God, right? What if we don't obey the commands? Well, then they're just words. They're just sitting there. They're not, they're not, they have no, they're the, the, the words are the potential. It's us putting them into action, right? If we fully integrate the text that says, do not bear a grudge or seek revenge, but love your neighbor as yourself, that's how the light gets into the world when we love our neighbor as ourselves. What good is a commandment if we can't do it? And so we go to the God's commands to increase our light. And I'll tell you real quick a story. Um, we heard this the other day. We had this terrible shooting here at the Covenant School in Nashville. And the shooter's parents are Christians. And they had sent their daughter to that school. Well, the people of the Covenant Church and that school, the Christians that go to that church, they paid for that girl's funeral. Because Jesus says we're supposed to love our enemies. And that doesn't mean just saying it. It means let's put it into action. In this terrible moment, they said, no, we're not going to be angry. I mean, the parents lost their daughter too. Anyways, it's, it's a remarkable. That's putting do not bear a grudge or seek revenge, but love your neighbor as yourself into action. Okay, the last one, Proverbs 20, 27. The spirit 
of man, the spirit of man is the Lord's lamp. And I love that. Let's increase the light through the spirit. Okay, this one I didn't put on your sheet. We'll finish it with it. Turn to Titus 2.14. Because Paul's zealous. Many of the disciples are zealous. Jesus is going to take that zealous energy and he's going to point it in the right direction, or at least that's what he wants us to do. So this is a great verse from Paul, Titus 2.14. So I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. Paul writes, It's Jesus who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, right? Jesus gave himself he gave himself for us to redeem us from all the iniquity and to purify for himself a people, a people of his own who are zealous. Zealous for what? Good deeds. Right? We engage the world. That's how you increase the light. I was reading a commentary on Hanukkah. And they were talking about how do you get your kids to understand increasing the light? Well, light a candle, then go to the homeless shelter. Light a candle, go spend time at a, you know, at the hospital with people who don't have anybody to visit them. Light a candle and go out and do a service project. Show your kids how you increase the light. And I thought this was great because Paul says the same thing. He wants you to be zealous, but pointed in the right direction so that the light increases in the world. Okay, that's a lot. The idea, Hanukkah, Hanak, to dedicate, is where we get the word. So the festival of dedication that Jesus went to, you find it in First and Second Maccabees. That's in the Apocrypha or Apocryphal writings. Very important writings, not divinely inspired, but helps you understand some of the, the way that thinking was changing during that time. It helps you understand the history between the Old and New Testament. This is a holiday of religious and political freedom. You know, when darkness shows up and says, you cannot worship God, they said, watch us. And there are some amazing stories about that come out of this that are in those two books. And I can tell you, Bonnie and I were walking down through one night of Hanukkah and we're walking down in a mall, out, outside mall, and there's a band playing. And it was I mean, I get shivers even thinking about it because these, he's like, everybody's waving the Israeli flag. And he says, 2,000 some years ago, they tried to kill us. We're still here today. And you think, what Israel? If, you know, if there's one evidence for there being a God is that Israel exists. And, uh, you know, to have that connection to that holiday is, is remarkable. Okay. It's about light into darkness. How do we do that? It's through our deeds. And then Paul says, be zealous for good works. So we can get the idea of the zeal that the, that the Maccabees had for the law. Now, obviously, Jesus is going to squelch the whole part about murdering your enemy. He doesn't want you to do that. Move that zealousness into good works. Like Peter, cutting off the ear. That's a zealot move. And we have to recognize that. That's a zealot move to cut off the ear of the servant to the high priest, which means if you're a priest who has any body part cut off, you're no longer allowed to serve in the temple. And that's what the zealots would do to a priest. Chop off a finger, an ear, a nose. Now you're disqualified from serving in the uh, temple. 
And all of that just because Jesus went to Hanukkah. 